Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our study of the small catechism. I'm going to do an introduction, but before that, let's begin as we, as we usually try to with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, well, as we study the small catechism, it would be good to know which one we're looking at. And of course, this is the one with a copyright of 2017. It's the most updated Lutheran catechism there is from Concordia Publishing House. I think you can, at present at least, get it on Amazon cheaper and with free shipping. Um, so should you so choose, uh, you are free in Christ to do so. There are, there are two texts that, as, as a pastor, I would have you have. One is a Lutheran study Bible. Even if you happen to be watching online and you're not a Lutheran yet, um, <laughs> A Lutheran study Bible is, and I've looked at a number of them from all different denominations, is objectively about the best study Bible extant, at least in the English language. It is a wonderful resource. So pick up a uh, Concordia or Lutheran study Bible. I guess they used to be called Concordia, the NIV. This is the Lutheran study Bible ESV, English Standard Version. And they come in many shapes and forms. This one is mine. There are others like it, etc., etc. But you want a Lutheran study Bible. Now, second to that, you want this book that we're going to be studying here. And this is the small catechism with explanation. The project for today is to really contextualize, contextualize ourselves. What, what is a catechism? What are its uses and purposes? And how do we use this tool in our Christian life as we all walk and journey together toward heaven and towards our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, but this is the second item you want, the, the small catechism with explanation. A third text that you might like to pick up, and I don't have one with me, I know we've got small versions over here, but that's the book of Concord, and that's for more in-depth study, and we from time to time here in our classes at Faith will go through a document. The Book of Concord is a collection of historic documents from the 16th century articulating what the Lutheran Confession is. And of course, the argument of the Book of Concord in all of its documents is that this is what the Christian faith is. And so there's a specific methodology and mode to Lutheran theology, and that is always, here's what God's Word says, here's what the church says, and here's what we say. These three points should make a straight line. Why do we not, why do we not simply say, this is what the Bible says, this is what we say? Why do we not ignore 2,000 years of history. Because there is a very important component there. 
And much of modern Protestantism ignores that component. One gets the impression that it was St. Paul who got it right in the first century, and then maybe a couple guys in the 16th century, and then us. We're the ones who are the church. And of course, as Lutherans, um, no, that doesn't hold any water. In fact, that's probably indicative of some false teaching. We want to make sure that what we teach comes from the scriptures, a source and norm, but is also attested to by the Orthodox Church Fathers so that we're not saying anything new. We are continuing the line of theology for 2,000 years. So, again, the Book of Concord is going to be very helpful to you as the, as the third resource um, that you might want in your Lutheran library. And beyond that, it's a little bit up for grabs, but you certainly couldn't go wrong with a fourth resource, the Treasury of Daily Prayer. Um, it's got as much as you want and probably more, <laughs> but of course you can use it as minimally as you want in terms of a daily prayer resource. So if you're looking for a daily study of texts uh, with, that include um, prayers, sometimes you can do these in the context of a daily office or service if you want. Um, you can take the minimal version, but then there's also included in, in the day, Treasury of Daily Prayer at the end of each day's lesson, um, there's a writing from one of the Lutheran fathers or church fathers. So it can be a great devotional resource, and, and I commend that to you. It's something that, um, as, as we've done a vicarage program here at uh, Faith that I've used with the vicars, we use that as our Thursday morning lectionary for our divine service there. We preach from those texts, read those prayers, etc. So those would be kind of your four resources um, that you really can't go wrong with. And again, we can argue about what other ones might be included, no problem. Okay, so what is a small catechism? Well, catechisms have been around since as early as the first century. Um, the, very, uh, the earliest catechism that we know of is called the Didache. You might recognize a similarity with the title of this room, Didache. Didache simply means teaching. And what was the point of that first catechism? It was to take the scriptures and summarize them so that your average Christian person could begin to grasp and articulate the central doctrines of Christianity. You might recall that before the printing press, it was rare to have a Bible, and you certainly wouldn't have your own personal Bible, so there was of necessity a need to get the Bible down to its essence, its essential teachings, or didache, and um, then have Christians memorize, know, and live out these truths. Now, catechisms change over time, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. As people's needs adjust, the catechism adjusts. Although, remarkably, the central core content of Christianity remains mostly universal from the earliest catechisms all the way to this present catechism that we have, our hands, uh, have in our hands today. Okay? So, very commonly, we see the Ten Commandments included, the moral teaching of the church. Very frequently, we see the creed, that is, the essential fundamental doctrines of the Trinity, 
Christology and our salvation in Jesus. And very frequently we see a treatment of the Lord's Prayer and sometimes liturgical treatments as well so that, we, so that Christians of all times and places can know what the center and nature of our worship is. So there is a long tradition in the church of catechisms. Now, this smaller catechism comes to us, obviously, from the pen of Martin Luther in the 16th century and um, some roughly 12 years after he nailed the 95 Theses. You can tell by the title, the small catechism, sometimes called the smaller catechism, that there must also be a larger or large catechism, and indeed there is. Um, we can study that at some point. In fact, I think in the last three or four years we probably have. It's a wonderful resource that we can graduate into after this. All right, what is the purpose of a catechism? Well, as we're going to see, it is specifically so that the head of the household can teach the family the core tenets of the Christian faith. That's its point and its purpose. Now, today we all have Bibles in our homes, we all have Bibles on our phones, we can just Google whatever verse or topic we want and up it comes. You can even add in, you know, your favorite verse and put it in Greek or your favorite verse and if it's Old Testament, put it in Hebrew and up will come an interlinear complete with all the parsing and grammar that you could possibly want. All right, but what's still the problem? How easy it is to lose the forest for the trees <laughs> and how easy it is to look at the whole Bible and simply get overwhelmed and say, well, where do I start and what's the core and what's the essence of the Christian faith and how do I communicate that to my children sitting around the the table, well, you know, one of them spilling his milk and the other one's eating her napkin. Um, <laughs> oh, Genesis 1-1. <laughs> Hold on, everyone. So a catechism still um, retains its great value in terms of its simplicity and passing on the core of the Christian faith. All right, so there are some assumptions um, to the small catechism. One of those assumptions is that the head of the household and the members of the household have already been baptized into Christ. So that's one of the assumptions, is that this is a text for Christians. Um, now, could it still be profitable to non-Christian people? Well, sure, but that's not the assumption behind the intent. The, in, the intent and the assumption together are that you've been baptized, that you know who Christ Jesus is, You've, you've recognized your sin before God. You've received the great forgiveness of sins, the atoning death of Christ on the cross for us and for our salvation. You acknowledge and know he's risen from the dead. And you're thinking to yourself, where do I start with Christianity? That's a question that the catechism will answer for you. Secondarily, what does it mean to be a Lutheran? Well, that is secondarily a question that the catechism will answer for you. But the purpose of the small catechism as such is not to make you Lutheran. It's simply to teach you what the scriptures say and thus make you Christian. Okay, so the whole idea of being a Lutheran Christian takes on a specific and nuanced meaning. Um, in the, out of the historic context of the Reformation, of course, 
and the idea of is our standing before God in death and at his judgment seat, is that a matter of my faith and my good works? Or is that a matter of my faith alone and the pure good works of Christ given to me freely? Clearly it's the latter. Clearly it's justification, our right standing before God on the basis of his grace through faith on account of Christ Jesus, not account of, on, on account of any merits or worthiness within me. But that's really a secondary question. That's, you know, the Lutheran confession, um, again, tying into the confession of the church fathers, tying into the confession of the scriptures. Primary reason for the, for the catechism is simply to be Christian. All right, let's open up our catechisms, and I want to show you a couple of things. Today's really just going to be an introduction to this book that you have in your hands, and we'll get into a little of the material, providing we have time. Feel free to raise your hand, ask questions, ask clarifications. Um, If you happen to walk in and you've forgot your small catechism, um, we do have a couple up here for purchase, and I think we might have a couple over here for borrow, but I would, if, again, if you don't own one, you're going to want to own one. Um, you might even want to write in it or mark it up a little bit, um, so you'll definitely want to get one ultimately. Feel free to come up to the sides, I promise. You're not on camera. It's about right here and right here, so you can sneak up to the sides w- without being uh, immortalized on the internet forever. <laughs> All right, the first thing I would like you to do, just just very briefly, is try to open to page 13. And we'll put a, we'll put, once you get to page 13, we'll put a finger there. And then, um, while retaining a finger there, open to page 40. And once you have page 13 touching one finger and page 40 touching the other, here is the small catechism. If I hand you this this whole book, it's got 400 and some odd pages, you're saying, in what sense is this a small catechism? I shudder to think what the larger catechism must be. Is it over a thousand pages? But here's the first and most basic thing you need in order to wrap your head around this book and how to use it. and That is, the small catechism is here between your fingers, pages 13 through 40. All right, what's the rest of the catechism? Well, the rest of the catechism is the explanation of what's in the small catechism, these pages 13 through 40. So, if you think of pages 13 through 40 as Um, and then you were to just expand them into an outline form and support every point with scripture and ask and answer questions. That's what the explanation is. Now, one thing to keep in mind, um, I I, I feel like a magician. Look how small I've made the small catechism already. Watch, behold, and I will make it smaller still. Okay? In between your fingers here, pages 13 through 40, is the small catechism, but it's also with Luther's written explanations and meanings. 
So, for example, if you look on page 13, um, and you see, of course, the beautiful icon of the Ten Commandments there with the cross over the top, again, depicting what God would, would have us do, and, of course, then by nature, what, what we fail to do, where we fall short of His glory. You see the cross set over the top of that, Christ atoning, for our sins, for our failure to keep God's law perfectly. And of course you see there the Sinai, Mount Sinai, where the Ten Commandments were given, and the burning bush. We'll, we can talk about that a little bit more. Then you see a banner with the Ten Commandments. As the head of the family should teach them in a simple way to his household. Um, this is part of your, your duty as royal priests, as the scriptures call you. So, um, father as head of the household, royal priest, and uh, mother with him as helpmate, um, to teach these things in a simple way to the entirety of the household. Now, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. And then here's the meaning, as we say, or the explanation sometimes, as we say. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Many of you uh, who grew up Lutheran at some point in time memorized each one of these, what does this mean, and uh, the meanings, as we say, or the explanations, as we say. But here's how the catechism gets even shorter. When Luther talks very passionately, very vehemently about memorizing the catechism and daily using and praying the catechism, he doesn't almost always, he doesn't mean the specific meanings or explanations that he's written. He means the texts themselves. So he means the Ten Commandments, nothing else. Uh, you shall have no other gods before you. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, etc., etc. So in other words, the catechism can be shrunk even further to the texts that just come directly from the scriptures themselves. Does that make sense? So in a sense, even the, even the catechism in its, in its narrowest or smallest, you could probably fit on about six or seven pages because it's just the texts from the scriptures themselves. Does that make sense? All right. Open with me then to the table of contents. Um, it's about... Uh, maybe five pages in from the front cover. And what you'll see there in the table of contents is, of course, um, you'll get on page 10 a list of the abbreviations used. And then you can see how it denotes Luther's small catechism, section 1. Okay, the Ten Commandments then the creed, then the Lord's Prayer, the sacrament of holy baptism, confession, and the sacrament of the altar. Now, how many parts do you see there? Not a trick question, I promise. Six. Six. Yeah, the Ten Commandments, the creed, the Lord's Prayer, baptism, confession, absolution, sacrament of the altar. Six. These six parts are often referred to as the six chief parts. Okay, So sometimes you hear that language, the six chief parts. Um, and when I teach confirmation um, to our seventh and eighth graders, we go through the catechism. 
and I tell them, you have to memorize the six chief parts. Why? Because if you don't know the six chief parts, you don't know the catechism. And this entire class is based on the what? Catechism. Thus, to know the catechism, you have to know the six chief parts. Okay? Now, what we're going to see in these six chief parts is Christianity taken all the way down to its foundation. Okay? Um, now, of course, you could come back to me and say, well, the foundation of Christianity is Christ. Fair enough. I would concede that point then. Um, but what after Christ and the forgiveness of sins um, do we build upon that foundation? And here are the six chief parts. So the Ten Commandments are, of course, God's will for our lives here on earth. The first three commandments all have to do with our relationship with God, and the last seven commandments have to do with our relationship to our neighbor. Jesus sums up these commandments as love for God and love for neighbor. Okay? What inevitably is the problem as we try to go out and love God perfectly and love neighbor perfectly? We find out that we are very far from perfect. In the words of St. Paul, the good I want to do, I do not. The evil that I don't want to do, that I keep on doing. So the Ten Commandments have this, um, you know, again, just to simplify here, we'll get into a more detailed description for us, but in the context of the of the catechism, the commandments have this twofold role. We know who God is. We know who Jesus is. We know who has baptized us. This is what God desires for us to do. Right? There's kind of the first point. It's what God our Father desires for us to do. Second point, inevitably we come to conclude these are the ways we fail. Okay? Now, what comes next then is the creed. And in the creed, you can think of, um, here we mean the Apostles' Creed. All right? There are three creeds that are ecumenical. What does that mean? That means that all, all Christians historically have confessed these three creeds. They come from the ecumenical councils. They're there before there's any divisions of the Reformation, even earlier, any division between East and West. These cre three creeds were there from the beginning. They continue to be confessed. And if you can't confess these three creeds, there's something wrong with your Christianity. You're not connecting the dots between the scriptures, the teaching of the church, and your church's theology. Now, these three creeds are the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Those, that's the Nicene Creed's the longer one. And those are the two creeds here at Faith that we rotate through every other Sunday. So today was the Apostles' Creed. Next week you can count on the Nicene Creed. Um, it now is simply not the time to go into the history of where these creeds developed and why, but um, last but not least then is the Athanasian Creed. And that is a lengthy creed that we tend to only say once a year at Holy Trinity Sunday. And the Athanasian Creed is a lengthy creed articulating Orthodox Trinitarianology, how, how we believe and confess the Trinity, and then secondarily, the person of Christ as true God and true man and our Savior. Okay, those are the three creeds. Now what's being referred to here as the creed is simply the Apostles' Creed. 
The Apostles' Creed, if you trace the roots and origins of it, is the earliest creed. It goes all the way back, some say as early as the second or even late first century. It's a baptismal creed, so that when you're an adult, you do two things. As you're, as you're converted to Christ, you do two things. You renounce the devil and you confess your faith. You make assertions about God. Those assertions, those, that confession of faith, is, is the foundation of the, of the um, Apostles' Creed. Okay? So, um, the Apostles' Creed then, how many articles in the Creed? Three! Article on the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we are introduced to who God is and what he does for us in a really simple way. First article, he's the maker of the heavens and the earth, me and all things. Everything we have and see and are, he gives to us by pure grace and mercy. So we can see the astounding goodness of God, but we can also, if we simply contemplate this article, we can understand some profound things about his mercy too, that he pours out his goodness even upon evildoers. The sun shines on, on you and the terrorist in the Middle East. Food is put on both of your tables. God gives to the, to the righteous and the unrighteous, the good and the evil, such is his fatherly goodness and grace. All right, then the second article on the sun, and we're going to get into that article in specific, but here there's a twofold confession that's central, namely that Jesus is true God and true man, in one person, that's all one point, and second is his atoning death, that he goes to the cross for me and for you, as the Nicene Creed says, for us men and for our salvation. Okay? And then, of course, the third article, the Holy Spirit, and how the Holy Spirit is the one who makes things holy. Now, it's not just a clever name. Uh, he's the Holy Spirit because he makes things holy. That's his superpower, if you will. He goes around and he makes the Holy Christian Church, and he makes sinners holy. How so? By bringing them into faith in Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who makes us holy, even unto the resurrection of our bodies. Alright, so the Ten Commandments, who God would have us be, and in reality who we are, which is sinners. The Creed, who God is and what he's done for us to atone for our sins, and thus have a reconciled relationship. Out of a reconciled relationship with God comes an ability to call upon him in prayer. How then do we pray? And that's the third chief part, the Our Father or the Lord's Prayer, whereupon Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. So, do you see how this works? If I were to, if I were to simplify this all the way down to its basics, the Ten Commandments have an SOS function. They show our sin. And the creed has an SOS function. It shows our Savior reconciled to God through our Savior. We are bold to pray the Our Father. And from the Our Father, we can expand out into the Psalms and all the other prayers of Scripture and the church and ex corde or from the heart, spontaneous prayers, all the rest. But you can't get any more fundamental than the Lord's Prayer itself. Make sense? Okay, so this is the grounding of our faith. This is really, and I hope you can see here that this is the essence of Christianity. Like, what are the very essential things you need to know 
to be a Christian? Well, you need to know you're a sinner and you need to know your Savior. And then you need to know how it is that you have a daily life and relationship with Him, and that's the Our Father. Okay, so is that making sense in terms of why the Catechism is the very grounding of our faith and what we want to transmit to our kids? And again, by Catechism, we don't mean anything man-made here, because look, Ten Commandments, where does that come from? It's, it's, yeah, it's Scripture. Now, the Creed, there's no place that you're going to open the Bible and find the Creed, but for every single line of the creed, there are multiple scriptures that could be cited to demonstrate each and every line. So even though it's not technically scripture, it's directly from scripture. All right? And then the Lord's Prayer, where's that come from? Scripture. And of course, the disciples asked Jesus, who better to ask, how should we pray? And Jesus says, when you pray, pray in this way. So this is as basic as it gets, and these are the first three chief parts. Now, even though it's quite basic, as you can probably guess, there's enough here to keep the most educated, I won't say old, I'll say mature, Christian, entertained and curious and interested and learning for his entire life long. This is why Luther says, I never tire of the catechism, and no, no matter, even though I've become a doctor of theology, and even though by God's grace I know more than most, I can never stop learning the small catechism. And again, he doesn't have in view his own words here. He has in view these words of Scripture, the Ten Commandments, they're endless. They are endlessly filled with wisdom and the glory of God. The creed, oh, unimaginably so. The mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of salvation, the mystery of conversion by the Holy Spirit, it's all there. It's all incredibly there. And then the Lord's Prayer, oh my goodness. You can never cease, to lear- you can never cease learning well enough the Lord's Prayer. There is so much depth and richness in each one of the petitions, in the introduction and conclusion. It's endless. So while this is the foundation, we shouldn't dismiss it in our minds as, eh, this is for the kids. Hardly, hardly. Okay, I see a hand popping up, so now would be a fine time to take a question or comment, and we'll keep rolling along then. Thank you. Um, having sat in front of Mr. Trezinka when I was a mere five, six-year-old child with Luther's small catechism in front of me, memorizing it as we're driving to school, I have never, I mean, think how long ago that was, I have never asked the question, what is the meaning of catechism? Is it a Latin word? Oh, great question. Yeah, so the vicar can correct me, me since this is all fresh in his mind. But in the middle of the word catechism, which comes to us from Latin, catechismus, you can hear the, you can hear the word echo. Yeah. And so this is a Greek word in its origin, kata. Uh, Kesmos, but in that in that kata and then the echo, you have a question and an answer back and forth. And that this is why the catechisms tend to take this form of question and answer. Um, you can see that even as we looked at page 13, um, where there's the teaching, you shall have no other gods. Then there's the question, what does this mean? And the teaching is echoed back. Um, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Yes. <laughs> for us to have Holy Communion, um, 
Right. We had to answer all of those critical questions. But that to me is a fascinating idea. And, and wouldn't it have been imperative for the teachers and the pastors to have conveyed that to us? Yes. It's a question and there's an answer. Question and answer is... Mm-hmm. Correct. Correct. Thank you. And, and thank you for, you probably re-traumatized half of us in this room as we, <laughs> as we recall seventh and eighth grade and going through confirmation. And it used to be the custom that you would sit in front of the congregation and be asked these questions and then you would give an answer. Um, I happen to be the only one in my eighth grade class and my dad the pastor. And so I was responsible for the fullness of the material. <laughs> Uh, but mercifully, mercifully, I did not have to do this in front of the entire church, just in a back room with my dad and some elders and um, a lot of mercy. <laughs> and then again, as we go through seminary, we have to learn all of this with the meanings, uh, word by word. Um, but then, you know, as soon as you go into the pastorate, even though you don't want to forget it all, you're constantly forgetting it and rememorizing it and forgetting it and rememorizing it. That's the way it goes. Um, so yeah, this question and answer is a foundational part of, of kind of the, um, uh, the catechetical method throughout the centuries of the church. All right, so we're laying the foundations of, of I'm a sinner and I'm forgiven by God, and we can ask deeper questions than that, but on account of his forgiveness of my sins in Christ Jesus, I'm free to call upon him as uh, my father, and not just my father, but our father. You know, you can never pray the Lord's Prayer alone. You're always praying it with the entire body of Christ and for the entire body of Christ. What comes next in the last three chief parts? So chief parts four, five, and six. I think the easiest way to think of these is these are the gifts that God bestows through Christ Jesus. And if you think about these, they tend to go chronologically or in a kind of logical order, don't they? The first of those is baptism. Okay, first you're baptized into Christ and this and as we will see, the catechism is going to rely on four scriptures for its baptismal teaching. Okay, so we'll take a look at those. Uh, we'll take a look at those scriptures, but just very, very quickly, from Matthew 28, from Mark 16, from Titus 3, and from Romans 6. That's the foundation of the baptismal teaching. It's the foundation of the Christian life as God pours out this gift and blessing upon us. What happens when you're a baptized Christian and you've fallen into great sin and your conscience is defiled? This is the purpose of God's gift of confession and absolution. Okay. Uh, here in the modern Lutheran church, we do it at the beginning of every divine service. It's also available to you by appointment with your pastor, or you can even come see me on a Thursday morning from 6.30 a.m. to 7. I'm sitting in the sanctuary, twiddling my thumbs. Well, not usually twiddling my thumbs, but waiting for someone to come in, and I'll hear confession and grant absolution. We'll cover this in detail when we get there, but this flows from... Jesus teaching his disciples in John chapter 20. Remember, after he's raised from the dead, he appears to them in the midst of the locked room. He breathes on them. I'm, this is a paraphrase to be sure. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. 
If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. So there, Christ gives us these keys to unlock heaven to penitent sinners, to forgive sins. And that's where absolution comes from. John chapter 20. Now, we'll get more in in depth and detail there, but for now, hopefully you can just see that we're carrying on with this theme of the catechism is just the scriptures and the gifts here that God gives to us in um, baptism and confession absolution. Last but not least, the sacrament of the altar, as it's frequently called, or the Lord's Supper. This is the third gift that God gives to us. Now, why does this come after baptism and confession? Because that's the normal order. You don't go to communion unless you're first baptized. Um, We even have this kind of symbolically in John's Gospel where you can't come to the table of the Lord Jesus without your feet being washed. There's a baptism that's preparatory for the meal. The way the early church put this is holy things, the body and blood of Christ, for holy people, those who are baptized by the Holy Spirit and made holy and fit partakers. Why confession absolution after? Well, because the Lord's Supper is for the forgiveness of sins. In order to receive what's given there, you want to desire the forgiveness of sins. And so you want to have reflected and confessed your sins and received that absolution so that you can come and be comforted and strengthened um, in in the forgiveness of sins given and bestowed um, so intimately, so personally in the Lord's Supper. Now, we'll talk about all of this and we'll have time to flesh out you know, differences and similarities between these gifts of God. Um, but that's what I want you to see for right now, is these are the six chief parts. Um, the sacrament of the altar, we're focused there on the words of institution, the words that Jesus speaks on the night when he's betrayed, when he institutes the supper. These come to us in four places in the scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul. Um, What we've done, and we, I say, this is way before Luther even, um, but what the Western church has done is taken these four accounts, kind of smooshed them together. The fancy word there is conflated them together. And you have the words of institution that you hear every Sunday um, spoken by the pastor. It's a combination of all those words so that nothing is lost. All right? So again, just just to sort of, press one more time on the basics. When we're talking about the catechism, we're talking about the scriptures. We're not talking about Luther's commentary. We're not talking about the explanation per se. We're talking about the Ten Commandments that come from scripture. The Apostles' Creed that's entirely backed up by scripture. The Lord's Prayer that comes from scripture. Four baptismal verses that teach us God's gift of baptism. One verse, John 20, that teaches us the gift of absolution. And four different scripture verses that give us the words of institution. So you can see that the whole thing is completely biblical, so that when Luther and or I say, learn your catechism, we mean learn the Bible, learn the fundamental essential teachings that Christ has given us. So far, so good? Okay. I see a, I see a hand pop up one more time. Getting a little toasty here in my pastor's sweater. I'd have to move to a pastor's tank top. Please. There is a growing sense of God, the fact that God's word is not being presented to the children, that we see this cavalier disobedience in our society Mm. and how critical it is for us to maintain, I want to say, the presentation of Luther's small catechism. Yeah, thank you. 
Thank you. Um, when we see society decaying all around us, this isn't the first time the church has experienced this. We want a twofold, a twofold task here we want to have in mind. In the first place, we want to hold the line in terms of the biblical teaching of morality mm-hmm. and who we are as human beings and who God is. And we want to hold that line. Why? Because if we give up that line, we're giving up our children and the next generations. We're giving up the people in the pews and we're saying, come on in, devil, and rob the chicken coop. Okay, well, we're not going to do that. All right? But now the second part is we want to turn the corner on this, recognizing that while we do need to press firmly against culture, what we're going to see culture do is destroy the lives of people because it's all idolatry, and all the idolatry is going to do is destroy the lives of individuals. So, just as firmly as we stand against culture and make the good confession, suffering what may come, we equally want to stand in mercy and compassion towards the individuals who have been destroyed by this system, misled by it, and who have participated in it, and who have become greatly damaged. For them, we have the gospel, the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, and all of his healing and redemptive, restorative powers. And so, you know, it, there's this dichotomy that's, that we're called to, as Christians, to be very, very unyielding on the one hand, and then completely compassionate, merciful, and, and communicating the gospel and the forgiveness of sins on the other hand. Does that make sense? And that's, that's the difficulty, is that is holding those two lines. It's very easy to, to give up on the one and just say, hey, well, the church doesn't need to make any stand. We just need to tell everyone they're forgiven. Hogwash. You're not going to have any Christians to tell they're forgiven to. You're not going to have anyone. They're all going to be eaten up by the devil. Nor, on the other hand, do you want to say our battle is just against the culture. Um, we have no forgiveness, no mercy for those broken by these things. Well, you've just abandoned what it means to be the church um, of Christ Jesus, communicating the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. So it's those two things held together. That's, that's how we want to um, you know, see ourselves in this world uh, today. All right. So when we're looking at the six chief parts, now, one thing that can happen here and... Um, you know, heaven forbid, is that the six chief parts be understood as doctrine, teaching, completely separated from our lives. As if Christianity, as if Lutheranism were simply knowing the correct teachings and assenting to them. That puts the Christian faith up here only. I know the truth, I assent to it. If you disagree, I need to correct you. That's got the Christian faith all up here in our minds. Now, of course, the six chief parts are such that they touch the fullness of what it means to be a human being, a human being saved by Christ, and a human being being conformed into his image, okay? But one thing that the catechism does that can really help us steer away from this idea that Christianity is a set of principles that we need to learn and intellectually assent to is sections 2, 3, and 4 of the catechism. You can see those on the bottom of the table of contents right after the six chief parts. Okay, Section 2 is going to teach us the daily prayers and if we have a minute, in, in just a second, we will um, look at those. Section 3 is going to teach us the table of duties. 
and section four, Christian questions with their answers. Now, these are ways in which the Christian faith, the content of the faith that we're learning and living in the six chief parts, where the rubber hits the road in our lives. So daily prayer, what does that look like for a Christian? What does that look like for a Lutheran? It's absolutely essential, you know. I think C.S. Lewis says that, and I like it for this, um, he says that learning the creed or learning the doctrine is like learning the map of Christianity. But that's an entirely different thing, isn't it, from going out and driving. And so the, the daily life in the home, praying together, living together, working through trials and afflictions, that's analogous to driving. So um, the daily prayers, daily prayer life in the family is essential. Now, the table of duties we're going to look at as well. And the table of duties um, goes like this, okay? This is introduction to the concept, the biblical concept of vocation. It's where we even here in English in the States get this idea of vocational school. Okay, the, This is actually a borrowed theological term. So in the Western church, and really, really grabbed a hold of by Luther in the 16th century, is this idea of vocatio, vocation calling. That is that God calls you to certain stations in life, vocations in life, um, that have certain biblical duties and parameters. What are the chief of these? Okay, husband and wife. That's one dichotomy. Father and mother. That's a nut, well, excuse me, father and mother with children. Okay, there's the other side. So parents and children. There's the dichotomy. Um, how do we act as children? How do we act as parents? And the third, biblically speaking, masters and slaves. Of course, we can think in our context of employers and employees, and it works just the same in our context. These are the three major categories of vocation. Why does this become so important in the 16th century? Because the church is teaching that in order to really be a Christian, a first-class Christian, you've got to go out into the country, join a monastery, pray all day, and not own anything, and not work very much either, um, as Luther points out. That's what you've got to do to be a super-Christian. All the rest of us who are just doing our daily lives, we're second-class Christians if we're Christian at all. I mean, Luther wants to explode at this and say, absolutely not. The Ten Commandments and our vocations are the very things that God has called us to. Okay, so um, what does this mean then by extension? Like, and, and how is, well, we might even say, how has the church in America fallen into a new monasticism? Now, in order to be a real Christian, you have to have a ministry. How many of you won for Jesus? What's your ministry? How many mission trips have you gone on? Where, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, says, when does that have anything to do with anything? Now, well and good if you do. I'm not taking anything away from it. But we can't set this up as if this is true Christianity and everybody else is living lesser Christianity. Where this happens with the pastoral office, we have a term called sacerdotalism. The only way to be a, a real Christian is to be a pastor or go to seminary. Um, the, the great, just beautiful part of vocation is that God has called you to these specific areas and this is how you please him and you please him equal in this vocation as you would in any other vocation. 
You don't have to be a pastor to have God smile upon you in your daily work. You don't have to go have a ministry or save a thousand souls for Jesus for God to smile upon you. You can simply live a quiet and peaceable life um, living out these vocations, vocatio, that God has given you and called you to. Does that make sense? Okay, that's beautiful freeing doctrine. So we're going to talk about that. And here also will be introduced um, not only the concept of vocation, but then we're going to get into some other key biblical teachings that are, are going to really help us in our worldview, especially in these trying times for us as Americans. The first is going to be the three estates. Okay? The three estates. We're going to see this in the table of duties, and it's going to help form our view of the world in a biblical way. What we're going to see is that there's the estate of the church, the estate of the state, and the estate of the family. These constitute the grounding of reality, the grounding of what it means to be a human being and live in society here in a fallen world. Okay, the source of these estates is going to be the family, and the church is going to serve the family, and the state is going to serve the family. Where church or state is no longer serving the family, but oppressing the family, you've got a problem. You've got a reason to make a stand against that, okay? So the family is the core estate, followed by the church, followed by the civil sphere, the government, the state, okay? Now, as you can tell, with the family at the center, you're going to have these two other estates, and these two other estates are sometimes called the kingdoms, because these are the realms in which the family finds itself. One is the right-hand kingdom and one the left-hand kingdom. The right-hand kingdom is the kingdom of the church, and the left-hand kingdom is the kingdom of the state. Now, what we're also going to take a look at is how we as Americans can get this wrong, because we can go, oh, I know all about church and state. American understanding of the separation between church and state is identical to the Christian teaching of church and state. False. Completely false. Completely false. Could not be more wrong. False. <laughs> okay, and this is a big hole in our catechesis over the last, I don't know, as long as we've been in America. Um, we Lutherans have given up and conceded that to this American idea that state is one thing, church is another. What's the biggest problem? Out goes the Ten Commandments, separation between church and state. Out goes Christ, separation between church and state. What goes in there? Everything but Christ in the Ten Commandments. You can't have, it's just a vacuum. What are you going to have? Godlessness? Or all manner of religions, all taught in, as if they're equal? Um, so you can see that even just at a, at a most basic reflection on the concept of church and state, it doesn't work. You're, uh, the state is always going to have some form of religion that it puts forward, even if that's the religion, the belief and set of accompanying beliefs that is, we believe there is no God, and thus here are our set of accompanying beliefs. Can you prove and demonstrate that there is no God? Well, no. Okay, so we're dealing with a faith system here at its essence, aren't we? Can't avoid that. And then here are the tenets and morality of that faith-based system, which usually devolves to materialism. 
So we'll talk about the importance of understanding the two kingdoms doctrine, the importance of understanding the three estates, and the importance of understanding vocation, and how this shapes and forms the entire way we view the world. And we're going to do this all right from the biblical text. That's the table of duties. Last but not least, um, section four, Christian questions with their answers. In um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul admonishes the Christians of Corinth before receiving the Lord's Supper to examine themselves. Do you recall this? And this idea of examining oneself isn't merely limited to preparation for the Lord's Supper, although that's sort of where the rubber hits the road. Why are you receiving the Lord's Supper? For the forgiveness of sins. So then I need to know something about myself. Am I a sinner? And what constitutes my salvation? And who is this God who gives me Christ? And who is this Christ who lays down his life? And what is this gift that he gives me in the sacrament of the altar? And how is it that I may stand before him with a clean conscience even though I am sinful? And so... Christian questions with their answers focus on this ability of the Christian to examine himself or herself. Um, And so this becomes also a very um, functional, rubber-hits-the-road kind of tool for where our doctrine and life combine as one. All right? Now, what we've done here, then, is we've gone through the small catechism as such. So, the six chief parts... That's foundational. That's really the essence of the catechism. We've seen how all of these come right out of the scriptures. And then we see how prayer, the table of duties, and self-examination, Christian questions with our answers, help us take this faith in a way that we live it and experience it. Not as a set of axioms we memorize and regurgitate and yell at each other about on the internet but as a faith lived before God and before one another as church. Make sense? Okay. Um, We've got one minute left, and I may turn us to here at a a future session, but what I'd like to ask you to do then is, um, before we close, is simply turn to page 346. You've got the small catechism, Then you've got the explanation of the small catechism. That explanation is what we're getting to the end of. That explanation spans from, what was it, page 42 all the way through page 345. That's all the explanation. And then at the end, you've got kind of a collection of appendices. And I simply want to show you these to make you aware of these tools. And as I said, as we progress along through the weeks to come, we will be using some of these appendices. But I just want to make you aware that they are here and can be very helpful for answering questions that you might have or might arise in the context of your house. So, page 346, you see a treatment of daily prayers. If you just flip along here, you'll see on 349, a treatment of the table of duties. Now, remember both of these things, that the um, 
daily prayers and the table of duties are part of the small catechism, here you have additional and extra treatment. If you think to yourself, table of duties, that sounds pretty legalistic. Um, page 349 will comfort you because you'll see that the table of duties originate in the scriptures themselves. Colossians 3, 8 through 4, 1 and Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9 are both biblical tables of duties. All right. Um, so Luther is, is hardly inventing this, nor the church before him, but these things come right out of the scriptures. And if you flip along, we get to the appendix proper, page 351. Who is Jesus? And that can be beneficial to you in terms of understanding just the bare bones basics of who Jesus is and how he's confessed throughout the history of the church. If you flip forward to 354, you're going to see a section on reading God's Word. How do you read the Bible? Is there a lens through which you ought to see things? What does Jesus himself say the scriptures are about? Particularly in view here, the Old Testament scriptures. He says, it is they that testify of me. So there is a way to read the scriptures profitably. And here's a treatment of that, page 354. Um, through page 357. I'm almost finished. I know we're a minute or two over, but bear with me here, please. 358, what is worship? This will be especially interesting to you and maybe counterintuitive if you're used to what big box American evangelicalism portrays as worship. This is rather quite the inversion of that. Worship isn't so much what you give to God, but what God gives to you. So I commend 358 and following to you. Um, on page 360, Luther teaches us a simple way to pray. So this kind of has to do with structuring the prayers that come out of your heart and ex corde prayers. Maybe you've experienced this in your own prayer life. Your prayers kind of devolve to a laundry list. A Santa Claus list. There's this, and then there's this, and then there's this, and then there's this on that. Here's a way to give it a little bit more richness. Um, on 362, you have an outline of salvation. Kind of a nice frame to take and receive and simplify and maybe use in your own witness to those in your life who may not know Christ. Page 363 and following, you have, a, you have Luther at his spiciest, his usual, uh, he'll offend you if you're not careful, Luther's preface to the small catechism. He takes it out on pastors chiefly here for not teaching the basics of the faith, thinking ourselves way too highfalutin to do such a thing. Page 368, right after Luther's explanation, you have an explanation of Luther's seal, Maybe you've wondered what that strange little rose thing is. You even see it emblazoned here on the front and see it emblazoned everywhere. This is the Luther's seal, and you can find out what it means on page 368. 369 through uh, 371 is a listing of the books of the Old and New Testaments, along with very helpful pronunciation. If this has gotten rusty for you, you might consider re-going through and re-memorizing. That's got it broken down helpful, helpfully into different categories. You see the historical books listed, um, as well as the prophetic books, um, the poetic books, excuse me, and then the prophetic books. And then, of course, in the, in the New Testament, historical books followed by the epistles, followed by the prophetic book of Revelation.
372, the intertestamental period. Always fascinating. And then 377, and I promise we're just about done this time. 377, the church here. Ever wonder why the, the pyramids, those garments on the altar and pulpit, keep changing colors? Ever wonder why Pastor Rhodey's stole doesn't ever quite match? Well, that's another question. <laughs> that has to do with my own uh, inability to pay attention. Um, but here you'll find out the colors of the church seasons and what the church year is all about. If you flip over to 378, there's a beautiful image of this. The church year is effectively all about Christ. On 378, you can look, you can see Advent and Christmas that we just went through, Epiphany that we're just wrapping up um, today, in fact, and then we move into the Transfiguration, that'll be next Sunday, and then into Lent, um, because we do the one-year lectionary here, we can talk about that in the future. Um, we do pre-Lent, the Gessima Sundays, into Ash Wednesday, and that takes us all the way through uh, Good Friday and Easter, Pentecost and Holy Trinity. What do you see there on the right? You see everything from the conception of Jesus to the ascension of Jesus. What then on the left, the season after Pentecost? From, from there you have the teaching of Jesus. So to oversimplify, the entire church here is based on the life of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. Life of Jesus, teaching of Jesus. Sundays and Seasons over on page 379, and then um, Feasts and Festivals on 381. You can learn about all of these things. And last but not least, 383, you have terms relating to worship and God's house. Ever wonder what those confusing words from the liturgy, from the hymnal are? You can come here and find an answer. 387 goes right along with it. What are those strange symbols and meanings that I see everywhere? Lots of beautiful pictures for you to see it. Followed by a quick glossary, scriptural index, and that's your catechism. Lots and lots of tools at the end. Lots and lots of things to learn and relearn and enjoy. All right, next week we'll, uh, we'll get into the basics of the catechism itself. The Lord be with you.